Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith, as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at Amazon.com. stood poised to win a gold medal in the 50-meter rifle competition. Now, he had fired his first two shots, his third shot. All he had to do was hit anywhere on the target, and the gold was his. This was easy. This is as close to a gimme as you can get in the Olympics. And so Matthew Emmons took a deep breath. He fired, he held, and he hit a perfect bullseye, but nobody in the room applauded. In fact, a few people gasped because as they looked, they realized that he had hit a bullseye on the wrong target. You see, somewhere, Matthew Emmons had taken his eyes off of the target and the goal of where he was going. He got distracted by something, and when he looked back up, he shifted just a little bit to the left. He was awarded zero points. He finished eighth, and there was no award for him. Because when you hit a bullseye on the wrong target, you lose. I want to talk this morning out of Matthew chapter 15 about Jesus versus cultural Christianity. When I talk about cultural Christianity, this is what it is. Cultural Christianity is anywhere we redefine the target of our life with Jesus or anywhere We realign our beliefs and our practices to mirror our society more than our Savior. That's important. I want to say it again. Cultural Christianity. It's anywhere in our life we redefine the target. We shift just to the left. We take our eyes off of what it is and we shoot at something else. And with our life and our practices and our beliefs, we realign and find ourselves looking more like our society then we look like our Savior. And now listen, before you think, oh, I know who he's talking about, those cultural Christians. I want to tell you that cultural Christianity exists anywhere culture is. That's a word that we throw around a lot. All culture is is a group of people together for a common goal. So I have a newsflash for you. Your family has a culture. Your workplace has a culture. Overflow Church has a culture. And when we talk about the danger of cultural Christianity, looking more like the society of our culture than our Savior, you need to understand that it is just as true for liberal Christian cultures as it is for conservative Christian cultures. 
It's just as real for consumer culture as it is the uber-committed culture. It's just as prevalent in fundamentalist culture. Fundamentalists are ones that set up rules and say these are the do's and the don'ts of following God. It's just as true in fundamentalist culture as it is in fundamentalist culture, right? Fundamentalist culture are the ones that are the deconstructionists. They're saying we're getting rid of all the walls. We're redefining. You're hearing those buzzwords around today. Listen, both of those cultures can find themselves there. In fact, I'm going to tell you that cultural Christianity shows up among the biblically illiterate and among Bible elitists who quote the word of God all the time, but no longer sound like the heart of their Savior. See, any place we start walking in cultural Christianity, we can be the blind that are leading the blind into a pit. And so I want to give you a few ways that we can see this today. There's two ways that we fall into a trap of cultural Christianity. There's two ways that we realign, and we think we're serving Jesus, and we hold it up and we raise our hands, but we've distanced from him, and here they are. Number one, We make too little of the word of God, using our opinion to weaken or dilute something he said. Or number two, we make too much of our interpretation of the word of God, using our opinion to weaponize and divide. Now, this is too important for us to move on because if you want to say, like, man, this he's using words like cultural Christianity, like, I don't know if this applies to us. I want to tell you this might be one of the most foundational messages I ever preach because if you want to know what's happening in the Church of America, in every denomination across the board, whether you're in the church or whether you've given up on the local church, for the people who claim the name of Jesus, I believe what we're going to see in Matthew 15 is our battleground. It's Jesus versus cultural Christianity, and you and I can be just as guilty as anyone else. And it happens two ways. Either we make too little of the word of God. We water it down. We dilute it. We choose to lift up some portions that make us feel good. And the ones that make us uncomfortable, we throw to the side. Or we make too much of our interpretation of the word of God. See, you hear people say this sometimes. They say, well, well, God says it. That settles it. I believe it. And my problem is any time somebody says the Bible says it, that settles it, they don't recognize in that moment that what they're talking about is not the Bible, but their interpretation of something in the Bible. And so what they're actually saying is, God said something, I've interpreted it, and I'm not listening to anybody else. I believe my interpretation over yours. And any time you do that, we're going to weaponize the word of God, and we're going to divide people. See, either one of those, what's happening is we find ourselves leaning on our own understanding instead of trusting the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And so I want to give us just two truths to root into today, and here it is. Truth number one. Somebody say truth number one. The Bible is inspired. Your interpretation is not. The Bible is inspired. Your interpretation of it is not. Truth number two. Somebody say truth number two. Anywhere, anywhere you choose, we have that slide up, anywhere you choose to confuse God with the God of your creation, your view of God with God himself, you will make a God out of your interpretation and enemies out of all who fail to agree with you. Anywhere you confuse your current view of God with God himself, you will make a God out of your interpretation 
and you will make enemies out of anyone who fails to agree with you. See, this, this thing about our interpretation, our lens, is so important because the way that we see God, the way that we see others, the way that we see the Bible, right now is ultimately shaping how we will live and who we will choose to love. And it's not a problem for those people out there. As we're going to see in Matthew chapter 15, this is just as true for the Pharisees, the religious leaders, as it is for Jesus' closest disciples. We see through a glass dimly. And so the truth is this, somewhere right now, there's a place where you and I need a resurrected interpretation so that we would live from our new hearts. And so as we step into Matthew chapter 15, there are going to be four scenes that take place. One scene is Jesus versus the religious leaders. And the second scene is looking back on that scene, and it's Jesus telling us about this and what will happen if we would hear and understand. But then there's a third scene, and it's Jesus versus the disciples and their cultural Christianity and where they missed it, the faithful. And then he gives a final invitation of what would happen if we'd be willing to hear it. And so, now, I don't, I don't know about this, but I want to I give you a picture of what it could look like. And I was just at the Fine Arts Weekend. Fine Arts students, you did an amazing job this weekend. It was incredible. And so one of the things that I love with our fine arts students, man, they can make me laugh a lot. We've got some stand-up comedians, including my boy Josiah right here, bringing it. And uh, so I don't know if anybody remembers the comedian Jeff Foxworthy, right? And Jeff Foxworthy got famous with this bit, you might be a redneck if. And he has all these statements that are like, you might be a redneck. And he'd show up and he'd say something like, if you had a toilet in your front yard and you were growing plants out of it, you might be a redneck, right? Or if your mom walked you to third grade because she was in the same class, you might be a redneck, right? So I want to give you four views this morning of if you need a resurrected interpretation because you're falling into cultural Christianity. I want to give you four lenses, kind of like Jeff Foxworthy, except mine aren't funny. They kind of hurt. And I just want to say something today. Repeat this with me. Say, if the shoe fits, I'll kick it off. It's not mine to wear. I got to tell you, as I looked at this, some of these that I saw, I went, oh, gosh, I see myself in that. And the hope we have is this. If anybody is in Christ, they, have, they are a new creation. They've been given a new heart and a new mind. And so what I'm going to invite us into is four ways into a resurrected interpretation today in the midst of a broken world. That sound good? All right, the first one is this. We're looking at Matthew chapter 15, and it's this. If your life is full of rules and regulations, while you do little to help other situations, you need a resurrected interpretation. If your life is full of rules and regulations, while you do little to help others' situations, you need a resurrected interpretation. It starts in Matthew 15, verse 1. It says this, Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And Jesus answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have otherwise gained from me has been given to God, he doesn't need to honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So I want you to see what's happening here. The Pharisees are showing up to Jesus and say, Jesus, we have a problem with you. 
And our problem is this, you don't honor our traditions. You don't honor the things that our fathers teach. You don't honor our cultural Christianity. And he said, here's the problem that I actually see. You've confused your tradition, your interpretation of me, with my commandment, who I truly am. Remember our two truths? The Bible is inspired. Your interpretation of it is not. And wherever you confuse God with the God of your interpretation, you'll make a God of your interpretation and enemies of anybody that doesn't agree. And so Jesus says this to them, and he gives them this picture. He says, here's what I see. You've made hand-washing a spiritual rule that is needed for orthodoxy to be acceptable to God. Right now you're stopping my teaching because this is what you're saying about me. I can't be from God because I don't wash my hands ceremonially before I eat. And this is what they believed. There was this whole ceremonial washing. This wasn't just the, the, you know, um, just the hand washing that the CDC would be giving you. This is a whole ceremony that you would have because what they believed was if you ate food with unclean hands, then what you're putting into your body makes you unclean. And he said, no, there's actually a different kind of uncleanliness I want to talk about. And it has nothing to do with your tradition. It has to do with my command. He said, let me take you right back to Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. And he said, but this is what I found. You're quoting the word of God to disobey the heart of God for the sake of your tradition. Here's what was happening for them. They had this thing called a Corban law, C-O-R-B-A-N, a Corban law. And it comes right out of Leviticus, out of the Levitical law. And what they did was, they would, it's kind of like a legacy gift today. If you see that, somebody chooses with their life to say, I love my church, I love this organization, I love this charity, and so upon my death, I'm giving my inheritance to this place. So the Corban law was their legacy gift. It was the place where they said, because I'm a worshiper of the one true God, upon my death, I'm giving these riches, whatever they choose to set aside as Corban, to the temple. But the minute they made that decision, something changed. The minute something was Corban, it was holy unto God, and it couldn't be used for anything else except there's this little loophole in the Levitical law. You see, you could be 20 years old and give a legacy gift and still live another 60 years and maybe you fall on hard times or you have bills. And they said, listen, if you set aside a Corbin gift, you can't give it or use it for anything else other than the temple or your own personal needs between now and the time you die. And here's what happened. The Pharisees saw this. And what they began doing was taking some of them, their entire inheritance, all of their money. And they, they said with all of it, oh, it's all Corbin." And so what started happening is when their aging parents came to them saying, I'm really in need, I'm destitute, and just like I loved you and cared for you as you were coming up, I'm asking that you would love and care for me. They said, gosh, mom, dad, I'd love to, but I've given all my stuff to God. It's all Corbin. And the minute their ailing parent would walk out of the room, they would take that Corbin gift to go and spend on whatever they want for themselves because of the loophole in the law. See, when your life is filled with rules and regulations... When you can quote a Bible verse for all the ins and all the outs, but you do little to help other people's situations, that is a cultural Christianity that means you need a resurrected interpretation. Jesus' word for them was hypocrites, and it literally was the role of a stage actor. That's what it was to be a hypocrite. It was somebody who wears a mask. And so what he's saying is this, you've become very good at playing church, and I see right through it. So here's where I would ask the question. In American Christianity, in places like this where we stand, is there anywhere we do that today? And I'm going to be willing to step on a few toes, and I'm going to ask for the next two minutes, you listen to everything I'm about to say so you don't hear what I'm not saying. 
But I'm going to say that I have a big problem with much of American Christianity's pro-life agenda. And here's the problem that I have. We have determined that we as a culture are pro-life because every two to four years, we step into a voting booth and we check the right box that is on the pro-life side that says that we believe life starts at conception. And we check that box and we walk out of the booth and we say this, I've done my part for the sanctity of life. I'm part of the good guys. And anybody else that doesn't match that is part of the bad guys. And they're what's wrong with this country. I'm pro-life. Meanwhile, we fill our calendars and our budgets for all kinds of things for us while we neglect a solvable foster and adoption crisis in our country right now. Did you know right now that in our city, every night, 30 to 80 children in Hillsborough County are waiting for someone to love them because they've been disrupted from their home and nobody's stepping up? In fact, the statistics say this because sometimes you hear people say, well, where is God in the midst of that? See, that's why I don't believe in God, but here's the statistic. If one family in every three churches would foster or adopt, one family in every three churches, that's us, Fishhawk Fellowship, Bell Shoals Baptist. If one family out of those three churches would foster or adopt, there would be no more crisis. The question isn't where is God, it's where is his church, who's standing boldly saying, we're pro-life. We say we're pro-life, and meanwhile, trafficking and rape and sexual exploitation is rampant, while a high percentage of Christians are directly supporting the pornography industry with their clicks. And we're pro-life. We say we're pro-life. And meanwhile, we're the richest 1% of the world. And right now, within an arm's reach, there are refugees, the destitute, the poor, those with a lack of access to clean water. And all of these are solvable. We have enough land and we have enough resources. But many of us are too busy splitting hairs over our opinions and our offenses and our first world problems to even notice. And we're pro-life. We say that we are pro-life. Meanwhile, we're one of the richest and most advanced nations in the world and the deadliest by a mile when it comes to shootings and suicide. People killing people and the broken losing all hope and feeling there's nobody in their corner. And this is what I'm going to say. In a Christian culture, I need to ask this. Are you pro-life or just pro-birth? I want to be really clear in what I'm saying. I am unapologetically pro-life. I'm passionate about it. I believe that life, from the moment of conception, even in the darkest, ugliest, dirtiest situations, that life is a gift from God. I have five children. Life is a gift from God. The last six years, we've been a foster family. Life is a gift from God. The last over 25 years of my life, I have walked directly in the mud with people on every side of this situation. From abortion, to losing their children, to adoption, to foster care. So I want to say this, I'm pro-life. But if we as a Christian culture step up and say, because we stepped into a booth and checked a box, that we now have the right to smugly sit back and say, the world is going to hell because of the government, because of them instead of getting off our high horse and doing something to change the situation, then your interpretation desperately needs a resurrection.
All right, we got past the first one. I'm a little passionate there. Let me just say this other thing. Oh, man, I'm going to get in trouble. Um, let me just say this. One of the things I've had people have a problem with through the years is they say, you just preach so much grace, so much grace. You tell the furthest people they can come home, and I just want to hear more judgment, more judgment, more judgment. I just want to say this in love. If you want to tell me that you think I preach too much grace, and when I look at your life, I don't see you doing anything to help anybody else's situation, you can just keep it. I, I, I'm really done hearing anybody on a high horse telling me about rules and regulations that aren't doing anything to help other people's life situation. And praise God, let me just say this about us, Overflow Church, that statistic I gave you, one family in every three churches fostering, you are not part of the problem. You are a direct part of the solution. The number of foster families in our church and advocates for foster families in our church, it is multiplying like crazy. You look like the kingdom of God. Praise God for you. The second I want to say, if your words and your actions look more like a rejection of your new heart in Christ than a reflection of it, you need a resurrected interpretation. Story continues. Jesus is talking to the disciples. It says, Jesus called the people to him and he said, hear and understand. And so you know where the altar call is going to come today. It's for those who will hear and understand. He said, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from your heart. That's what defiles a person. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile Anyone, there's some moms right now telling their kid, like, you're still washing your hands before you eat. <laughs> it might not defile you, but it's disgusting. I want to say this to us. Say, in Christ, in Christ. I have a new heart. A new heart. Yay. So I'm going to say it now with, with more than three of us that agree with that. Say, in Christ, in Christ. I, have a new heart. I have a new heart. And that's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. You can see some scriptures there. I encourage you, screenshot it and go look at these, because you're going to see all over the scriptures. It says, if you're in Christ. Anybody in Christ? If you're in Christ, you have a new heart. But here's the deal. You and I will live like who we believe we are. So it is possible to have a new heart and still speak and act out of old dead ways of a cultural Christianity around you that you need to resurrect out of. And Jesus talks about this. He said there's some problems. He said, some, some of it is evil that comes out of our heart. That evil, it means, it means dead or rotten. It's, it's stinking thinking. And then he starts to define what some of it is. He says some of what comes out of our hearts is murder, and maybe right now you're like, he was getting tough on that pro-life thing, but I haven't killed anybody, so I'm good. This one doesn't apply to me, but do you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah. Where Jesus said this, he said, if you look at your brother and deem him a fool, you've committed the same heart sin as murder. If you look at your brother and you say raka, raka literally means empty. It means if you look at somebody and you elevate yourself above them and say they're more empty of substance than you are, that you have arrived somewhere that they have not, we do that in rush hour traffic every day, right? He said it's the same heart sin. It's the same dead heart as murder. Your interpretation needs a resurrection. He said adultery and immorality come out of the heart. If you lust and objectify or use sex for your own pleasure, your interpretation needs a resurrection. Theft, and some of you are like, great, I'm not a klepto. That's awesome. But here's the deal. Theft is anywhere in your life you take and don't give. Let me say it again for those in the back. Theft in our lives is anywhere we take and don't give. You can steal peace in a room. You can steal joy. 
you can steal soul. That you find that you're always entering into relationships and they're all always about everything everybody else is doing for you. You're all withdrawals and no deposits. Ouch. It says false witness comes out of our heart. That literally means anywhere we're hiding or pretending or faking or shading the truth to look like we've arrived somewhere that we haven't yet arrived. And then he said slander comes out of this heart, gossip and drama. By the way, if you want to know what gossip is, is, is if you see a problem and you're not part of the solution but you're talking about it, it's gossip. Let me just make that real easy. If you see a problem and you're not a direct part of the solution, what does that mean? Matthew chapter 18, go to your brother one-on-one with him and show him his offense. Get in there and help his situation. If you're not doing that, stop talking about it. Because he said that doesn't look like the new heart that has come out of you. So listen, a new heart releases new life. Blessing is the language of heaven. So here's the deal. In Christ, we have a new heart. The question is, are we reflecting it? Now, here's what's crazy, because the disciples were quick at this point to be like, yes, amen, the Pharisees are idiots, and we got the new heart. We don't murder, we don't kill. They were so excited to hear this word. But I want you to watch what happens next and how easily it is for us to fall into cultural Christianity. So we said this, coming in. We said, if your life is full of rules and regulations, while you do little to help other situations, you need a resurrected interpretation. Second, we said, if your words and actions look more like a rejection of your new heart in Christ than a reflection of it, you need a resurrected interpretation. And third, if you treat as enemies those Jesus poured himself out to make God's friends, you need a resurrected interpretation. If you have small borders and tall walls, you need a resurrected interpretation. Story continues, and it says this, and this is where it gets interesting. Some of you are going to be like, that story finally makes sense. By the way, who's reading through the Gospels with us? Isn't that awesome? Man, it's so cool. So if you're reading through the Gospels, this is today's chapter, Matthew chapter 15. So you're going to go in and be like, oh my gosh, it's life. So just consider this an extended devotion. Here we go. Starting in verse 21, it says this. Jesus went away from there, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. His disciples finally came to him and begged, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Jesus answered them, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Oh, no, he didn't. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her and said, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. There's some scenes in the Bible that I feel like we've just stepped behind a veil into the twilight zone. And this is one of them. Anybody else read this and you're like, Jesus is kind of being a jerk, right? Like, like he's hangry, he didn't get his Snickers bar. Like, what happened? I want us to remember the context. By the way, let me just give this as a side note for those reading the Bible. The reason we're slowing down and doing this is I'm so, I'm so tired of my own life of taking a single verse and removing it from its context. So let's look at where we've gone so far. What just happened? What just happened? Listen, Jesus just stood with the Pharisees and he called them stage actors who created rules while robbing people who need an encounter from God. Everybody remember that? 
He said, you're stage actors, you set up all your rules, and you quote the scriptures, but you've closed yourself off. And listen, what's happening in this moment is Jesus is casting himself into his first dramatic production with him in the role of the hypocrite. So how do you know that? Well, let's look at it. The woman who came was a Canaanite. The Canaanite, if you read through the Old Testament, it's any number of tribes, but they were Israel's great ancient enemy. They were the bad, bad guys. These were the worshipers of Baal. These were the ones that performed child sacrifice and prostitution. These were the ones that worshiped demons. So when she said, my daughter's troubled by a demon, the disciples would have rolled their eyes and been like, yeah, duh, that's what you worship. And they were known for being exceedingly cruel as a kingdom. To say there was bad blood between Canaanites and Israelites would be the worst understatement you could imagine. And so Jesus writes a play where what he decides to do is to treat her exactly like the religious leaders of the day. He ignores her. He's indifferent to her. Why? Because he's illustrating the exact situation he just corrected the Pharisees for. Somebody who's broken and in need is coming to him, and Jesus responds and says, I'm sorry, what you would want from me is Corbin. I've devoted it to God for my own people. You see it there? He shows up, and in fact, at first he doesn't even answer her. He answers the disciples, and he tells them, no, I only came for the lost sheep of Israel. I've given my gift to God. My gift to God is only for the Israelites. It's only for those inside the walls. She's outside of the walls, so I've already designated this gift. I can't give this gift that I've designated to her. He's showing their hypocrisy in this moment. The woman is not deterred. So Jesus continues, and he calls her a dog. Why? Because that's exactly what the religious leaders of Jesus' day believed about her. It's what their cultural Christianity taught. Do you notice you don't see the disciples stopping and be like, whoa, Jesus, too far. Nobody. Nobody. Why? Because what he was saying was what the church of their day taught and expected. And the woman responds, and she says this. She says, yeah, Lord, but this dog only needs a crumb. Just a crumb of your grace will change everything. Somebody need a word today? Here's your word. Just a crumb of Jesus' grace will change everything for you. Just a crumb of your grace. And I love this because in this moment, this is what I call the Willy Wonka moment. And I'm talking about the real Willy Wonka, the one with Gene Wilder, not that weird, drugged-out Johnny Depp one, right? I'm talking about the real one. Anybody see the original Willy Wonka movie, right? And I love this scene at the end. If you remember, all the kids were rotten and terrible, and they all left. And then Charlie comes in with his grandpa, and Willy Wonka, for the first time, is not joyous, not gracious, not kind, not nice. He's just a jerk. He tells him, just take your stuff. Just get out. You're done. And the grandpa leans into Charlie, do you remember? And he's like, just take that gobstopper. We're going to take it to Slugworth. We're going to take it. We're going to give it away what we want. And he lays it back down on the table. And he goes to turn, and all of a sudden, the music turns a little bit, and you hear Wonka's voice change, and he says, Charlie. And then he ignites, and he says, it's all yours. I'm sorry I had to put you to a test, but the factory, all of it is yours. I just wanted to know what was in your heart. That's Jesus at this moment with the Canaanite woman. The minute she says, this dog just needs a crumb of your grace, it's like, you got it. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. But you, my dear daughter, have got it. And he said, I want to let you know. I don't want to take another minute. You need to know right now your daughter who you love, this God who broke himself to give a crumb, she's healed sitting at home right now. Because a crumb of my grace does change everything. You go and you be well knowing that you're adored. 
But there's something here I don't want us to miss because we can really get excited about Jesus there. But do you see the disciples in this story? They completely missed it. The disciples begged Jesus in the middle of the story, but it was not for mercy. What they begged was this, God, would you send this Canaanite away? Because she's crying to us. The words matter. That word in Greek, crying, it means croaking like a raven. That's what they said. She's croaking like a raven, and she won't stop. She's annoying, and she's driving us nuts. Just make her leave already. What did they do? Their cultural Christianity set her outside of the boundary lines that they believed grace was for. Can I ask a question to us? Is there anybody that you've assigned to live outside of the walls? Let me go two ways. Maybe it's a group of people that you actually treat as if grace is beneath them, or maybe it's somebody in your home that you love them, but you always treat them like they're croaking like a raven and they're an annoyance to you. You always treat them like they just need to get their act together and start contributing to the family or your job, and you're actually not seeing what's going on in their heart where they need a crumb of Jesus' grace that would change everything. And you've been made not to join the culture of your day, putting them outside of the walls, but to look like your Savior who changes it. And this is what I love in this story. We get to one final scene, and it's this. If broken people aren't coming to you, to be restored by the same God who's transforming you, you need a resurrected interpretation. If broken people aren't coming to you to be restored by the same God who's transforming you, you need a resurrected interpretation. And this is where Jesus goes. This is scene four, our final scene today, and then we're going to pray and land this plane. It says, Jesus went on from there, and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and sat down, and great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put him at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. And when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. Now, I want to tell you, go in Matthew 15 and read this, because here's what you're going to see happens immediately after this. Jesus goes and he feeds the 4,000. Has anybody ever wondered why there's these two accounts in the Gospels of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then Jesus feeding the 4,000? Anybody with me there that you're like, what the heck's going on with that? Like, I guess he has a food pantry. Or maybe you even wondered, like some scholars, to say, I bet they're the same story and they just messed up the numbers. But that's actually really lazy scholarship because if you notice, this is what you're going to see. When Jesus fed the 5,000, somebody, this is going to excite you. I've walked with the Lord a long time. It's this year studying in the Gospel of Matthew. I saw this for the first time, so forgive me if I'm a little excited. Okay, the feeding of the 5,000 took place within the walls of Jewish boundaries. It was in the Jewish land is where he fed the 5,000. And so when he came together, he said this. He went before them and he said, I am the bread of life. And then what did he do with it? You remember? He broke it. And then he distributed it. He said, I'm the bread that's going to be broken for you, Israel. He was inside Israel's boundaries. And then he spread it. And do you remember? It has this little detail. It says, and then they all ate and they were satisfied. And 12 basketfuls were collected of the crumbs that were left over. He's inside Jewish boundaries. What does the number 12 mean for a Jew? Well, there are 12 tribes that make up the Jewish kingdom. What is he saying to them? I'm your king, and I've come back, not for that split of that civil war that you had of Judah on this side and Israel. I came for all 12, and the crumbs of my grace, the leftovers are enough for all of you to come home, Israel. 
It's beautiful. That's the feeding of the 5,000. But listen, then he moved, and you see where we're at. We're in Canaanite territory. He now stands outside of the walls of Jerusalem in the kingdom of the Gentiles when he feeds the 4,000. And it says in the same way he went and he broke himself open and said, I'm going to be distributed to all of you to feed you. And it says this, and it says, and seven basketfuls were collected. Now, here's the deal. I'm not big in numerology, but I pay attention to things that are very obvious to a Jew of their day. The number seven is a number of completion, and it is also the number of the days of creation when God made the whole of humanity, the whole of the race. He went outside the city and said, this is what I'm now saying to you, disciples. I tried to say it to the Pharisees, and you applauded. And you said, we check our boxes and we do the right thing. But you failed with this Canaanite woman, and now I'm taking you all the way outside of the gates to say, hey, that crumb of my grace isn't just for her. She's not an exception. The crumb of my grace is the entire human race can come back home and be with me. Hallelujah, what a savior. Do you reflect an interpretation of God in your life that is so high and so loving and so joyful that the broken are running to you for grace and hope and life? I want to say something today because I know this. In this room, I know there are a lot of you that broken people are around you all the time. Let me tell you what a resurrected interpretation looks like. You need to stop complaining about that and start rejoicing because it means you look like the Savior. And you've got crumbs of grace to be able to give out. So for some of you, you're finding all the time the broken are coming to you. But maybe right now you're saying, you know what? No, I've got lots of opinions. I've got lots of Facebook friends. But I don't actually spend a lot of time with really broken people. And I'm going to say then that means that today is the invitation where your interpretation can have a resurrection and you can step out. So here's where I want to close. Cultural Christianity, no matter what brand it comes in, would love for us to hit bullseyes on all the wrong targets. But Jesus came so that we would live from new hearts with a gloriously resurrected interpretation. If only we'd lift our eyes hear, understand, and come. Would you stand with me? I want to give just a few calls in ministry right now, and I'm going to ask the ministry team to come up. I'm going to ask every person right now, if you take a minute, just close your eyes as you're standing here in this moment. Can you just ask this question first? Okay, Father, I've heard a lot. I've seen a lot today. What are you saying to me? Can we just breathe there for just a second? Just breathe in. Everybody breathe in. Breathe out. Father, I've heard a lot. What are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? Right now, humbly, I want to give you a few activations, and I want to be really clear in what we're going to do. These are the most important minutes that we'll spend here because these are the moments where your feet move. For some of us, what needs to happen today is you need somebody around you. You need a tangible hand on you, praying with you, agreeing with you, and I just want you to know, our ministers are up here, so at any point as I'm talking, and listen, it's never just about what I'm saying. If right now you're like, no, I need prayer, and it ain't even anything you're talking about, I just need prayer, then I'm going to ask you to come out from your seat. But on some of these, as I'm talking, if the Lord says to you, I need one of these ministers, would you step out from your seat and just boldly come to them? At any point, you hear and go, that's me. That said, I want to remind you that the Jesus who heals from a distance is completely capable of falling from heaven because he's in you and he's all around you. 
So as you stand in your seat, if the Lord says to you, no, you just need to receive this, and actually you moving right now would be a distraction, then I want you to obey that. But here's where I want us to land this this morning. I want to ask a few questions. Is there anywhere in your life you're compromising, silencing, or distorting the gospel? Is there anywhere you're watering down and diluting what God says because it makes you uncomfortable and unpopular with people? Is there any place for the sake of reputation you say, I know this is what I believe, but I don't want anybody to know that, and I'm just asking, would you lay that down today? Would you say, I don't want to look like cultural Christianity. I want to have the boldness to look like you. Father, I'm going to trust that if it's in your word and I see it, that it's true and it's good because you're good and true. Is there any way you're compromising you need to lay down? I pray boldness over the room for you right now. I pray that weak theology would die. I pray that spineless, tolerance-based theology that sounds really good, but that actually has no life-changing power would fall. The theology of the masses that says, not only are you loved and accepted, but whatever you're doing is working for you, so hakuna matata, keep doing you. That is not the gospel of Christ. He came so dead souls could rise. Would you rise up with him? Resurrect your interpretation. Second question I want to ask, is there anywhere that you are making too much of your interpretation? Are there any places where you're building walls and you're determining who's in, who's orthodox, who's a heretic, who's right, who's wrong? And you've got to step back in humility and say, Lord, I might have confused you with my interpretation of you. One of the things I love about being a five-fold body is we walk in very diverse communities. And if you walk in a diverse community, it means that we're all a little bit uncomfortable all the time. And I love that because that's the only place we grow. It's God calling you to lay down weapons where you have used his word in a way to start attacking people and putting them outside the walls. And then here I'm going to get real practical. These four that we talked about this morning. Are you in a place where rules and regulations dictate your life? They lead you. But you hear today that God is calling you to stop having your opinion and start entering someone's situation that's broken. Come on. Is there some place where you talk all about your theology and it's time for no more interpretation, it's time for incarnation, it's time for you to move and go to broken people? Can I ask the question, is there somewhere that what's coming out of your new heart doesn't look like the new you? Is there some place of your life right now you'd say, no, that attitude doesn't match who I've become in Christ. I need a resurrected interpretation. Come on. Come on. I'm going to be very bold here. I'm going to say in a room this size, the quote that I gave, and I don't say this with any shame, I say this with hope of liberation. I know in a room this size and those hearing my voice that there are people right now where you have an active struggle with pornography. I know that path. That was the path of my teenage years and my young adulthood, and it gripped me, and I felt like there was never going to be a way of escape, and I felt like a hypocrite and a poser. And I want to tell you, I know what it's like to live on the other side in victory with Christ. And I've known it for a long time. There is hope. But where it starts, again, not to shame you, but to call you out, is there a place where your new resurrected heart 
needs to raise its interpretation, resurrect and lift up and look like who you are now. Right now, would you lay that thing down? Lord, this attitude doesn't match the heart that you want from me. For some of you, what you're going to need is actual restoration. We've got a beautiful restoration ministry. Any number of these ministers here that you can meet with today will tell you how to take that first step. But where is it that God's saying, I want you to live in a way that's worthy of your heart? My final questions are this. Is there any person in your life that you're treating as an annoyance or an offense? That you're pushing them outside of the walls of God's grace? That you need to say, oh Lord, I'm sorry. Change my heart, change my attitude. Somebody right now, hand on your heart, would you just say, change my heart, Lord, change my attitude. Let me see them not like the disciples saw that Canaanite. Let me see them like you. The last one is a part of a life of consecration. This is what I'm going to ask for every person in the room. If you're at the place where you hear this and you say, you know what, Lord, I want to spend my life. I want to spend my life boldly and courageously going so that broken people could find life in Jesus. There's two things that need to happen. One we need to lay down our complaints about the place that you're around the broken. Just take a second and do that. Father, I'm sorry for complaining. But two, and here's what we're gonna do, if that's you, if that's you, and you're saying all the days of my life, I'm tired of my opinion, I am ready to step out and boldly enter broken situations that people could have life. I want you to just lift both hands over your head because I wanna pray an anointing for you. You say, I'm ready right now to live a life of incarnation, to pour out so that broken people can be well. it's been a long day, but I can't move past this one. I'm going to turn this way away because I, I'm not even going to see whose hands are up or whose hands aren't up, but I just want to give this last invitation one more time. If you're at the place in your life where you are saying, I want to live beyond myself. And I'm not saying that you're not. If you're already there, then this is you. Both hands need to be up. If you're already there going, I'm all in. Yes, broken people. I want them healed because of me. But this isn't for me. This isn't for the church. This isn't for us to post in a picture. This is you and Jesus. This is surrender. This is saying, both hands in the air, I don't want cultural Christianity. I don't want my opinion without my incarnation. I am ready to boldly go to broken people so they could be made well in you. I'm ready to follow you. And I'm asking if that's you, whether you're already doing it or this is the first time, if that's you, I'm going to ask you to lift both hands over your head because I just want to pray an anointing for you. So Father God, I ask right now for each of us, your sons, your daughters, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you fill us with boldness? Right now, when we fall away from the need for reputation, for what other people are going to say about us, for what they're going to think about us, would you give us courage? Would you give us a spine today, God? 
not to stand on opinion, but to stand in the boldness of restoring love that would empty ourselves so that sons and daughters can come home to you. Father, would you forgive us for the places our opinions stand in the place of who you really are? We don't want it. We just want to know you. Last prayer we'll make here, Father, I just want to know you. Father, I just want to know you. Father, I just want to know you. Would you tell him that now? Oh, Jesus, you're good.